Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. I'm your host KB, and this podcast brings you the audio experience of GameDev.TV. Now, let's get right into the podcast. Okay, so action. <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks guys for joining me. We've got another one of these hosts interviewing hosts things going on. We did, we did one last week, me and KB. It was really interesting to hear him talk about himself. But we're going to talk about you, Aaron, this week. Oh, my. Have, are you ready? Oh, yeah. Re- ready for... Because so, you've had a... You, I mean, yeah, you're a very interesting guy. And I haven't known you for very long, but I know that you're a very interesting guy just from knowing you for a little bit of time. So I guess the question... Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, the question is, like, you know, what... You know, where did you start out? How did you get into the, you know, how did it all start for you in terms of your career? Oh, my. Well, so uh, I guess as far as my career is concerned, the uh, first thing to clear up is that I'm not a programmer. I'm actually a system engineer or, you know, came out of the the you know, kind of the, the IT guy crowd, right? <laughs> you know, there's... Uh, when I started working in IT, it was one of those things where if you could spell IT, they threw money at you. You know, I mean, like you know how to turn a computer on. That's amazing. You know? Nice timing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so no, my dad. Uh, my dad worked uh, in electronics for the government. I grew up uh, in the Seattle area, kind of the suburbs, or more the really the rural, the what's called the Olympic Peninsula of uh, of Washington State. Uh, my dad worked for the shipyard there in Bremerton, where the I think the Nimitz was mothballed there or something like that, or you know some of the some of the you know big big aircraft carriers uh, did like refitting and stuff there. Um, when I was eight, my dad bought a refurbished or you know like a government refresh. So like after the government uses equipment for a while, they kind of they replace it with new equipment and they kind of sell off the old stuff for cheap. So. Mm. Um, I got an IBM PC, like a legit IBM PC, for Christmas when I was eight. <laughs> it was their XT model running in turbo mode at 10 megahertz. Whoa. Oh, so fast. Yeah, that was turbo <laughs> mode. <laughs> turbo. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was definitely spoiled. Had a, had a hard drive in that thing, five megabytes of storage oh, wow. in addition to the uh, floppy drive. So... Yeah, I got, uh, got to play around with, you know, a lot of the early games in the 80s that, uh, you know, to this day I still have a bunch of miscellaneous tokens and stuff and cloth maps from these old games that, you know, someday I'll end up in a, in a museum, you know. Um, learned how to do a little bit of programming. I actually discovered at that age that I really did not like programming because it was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I did like, you know, figuring out how to configure the system and, you know, figure out how to squeeze the drivers in and make batch files and, you know, all of the things that we were doing in DOS. And then, you know, Windows came along. Um, some of my first work, my dad had a consulting business. So when I was 14, I built a bunch of PCs for the local school district as one of the contracts uh, that he had. Uh, Connected them all together with uh, with network cables, you know, coaxial cables among like a network of maybe eight or ten computers, um, and then we played uh, uh, we played a game of network snipes on there, which was a, 
a multiplayer game running on the Novell network where you had a maze that both of your people were in and you were just a little arrow and you you could you know run around and shoot arrows at the other person <laughs> snipe them <laughs> so uh yeah, so that was like, you know, my first exposure to multiplayer gaming. You know, we were talking about, you know, operating systems that were colorful and amazing for the time, even on these, you know, six or seven inch screens. <laughs> 320 pixels by 200 in four colors. And that was like, oh, so amazing. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I got into you know, you know, just just from working with you know, you know, working with machines and and playing with different operating systems and that kind of stuff. Eventually, got into doing that uh, professionally in the '90s um, until actually maybe a month ago. The only Microsoft certification I ever had was Microsoft Certified Professional for Windows '95. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that got me into you know system engineering type stuff. Uh, you know, I've been doing that for twenty five some years. I do programming and game stuff, uh, kind of as uh, as an aside. And uh, if you don't mind, that's actually a pretty good segue uh, into me clearing the air about my involvement with Half Life. So you knew this was coming, okay? <laughs> All right. So first off, I want to say that yes, I did work on Half Life. But when I say that, that is like giving myself way too much credit, okay? I was there after the game was almost entirely finished. Fantastic team of guys at Valve. They brought me in because Mike Harrington, the lead programmer, co-founder of the company, uh, wanted to basically offload the system administration type stuff on me. They knew me. We had uh, actually interviewed as a level design, so they were, you know, they were they were happy that you know I understood what the business was and that I was a gamer and stuff like that. So they brought me in. Uh, I did some extremely minor like cosmetic stuff, like I touched up a couple of textures that were out of alignment, you know, <laughs> did some play testing, um, and I did get the unique opportunity that. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't. Uh... I didn't grab it before this interview, but I did get the unique opportunity that I have the second physical Half-Life CD ever made because I made it. The first one went to Sierra for manufacturing, so then I burned another copy for myself, and that was kind of like, that was my thing. <laughs> But yeah, don't don't uh, don't let anybody ever think that you know I was a level designer or a game designer or anything like that on that. No, that was that was all the amazing team at Valve and not me. <laughs> it, has there been like a big sort of mystique built up around this? It kind of sounds like there has been. So well, there's some weird stories out there that I don't know where they come from. Like, there's this rumor that I made the the flashlight in Half Life, and I don't know where this came from. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's some kind of story that goes like. Like the the contribution that I made to to the game was the was the flashlight, and that's not entirely true. It's maybe I I inspired it. So there was a flashlight mod in Quake or Quake Two that I had found somewhere on a bulletin board or you know somewhere on an IRC or something like that. And I was running that mod on my machine at work when one of the developers walked by and saw it and then went and coded a flashlight into Half-Life. <laughs> so at best, you know, I happened to be the inspiration for it because somebody walked by my desk, right? Like, I mean, but like, I don't know how these things come to be. There's <laughs> like, just these crazy stories come out of nowhere. <laughs> 
I mean, mm. that'd be one of those things that I'd probably just never deny. But I would never like confirm <laughs> it either. I would never <laughs> exactly to be like, oh yeah, I couldn't say. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. <laughs> um, yeah, so exactly. What was, what, although you were deaf, um, like towards the end of the like the process of making the game in the sort of um, end part, what was the sort of team at Valve like? Like, what was the experience of working there with them? Oh goodness, yeah. So I mean, such a such a great group of people. I mean, there was. So this was when they were in the Emerald Building in Kirkland. So we had just one floor of this building. Good story behind how that came to be, but maybe another time. Um, the floor was basically split in two. On the far left side of it, Mike and Gabe had the two corner offices down there. That was also the side where the admin stuff was, like the printers and servers and computer stuff was on that side. The web server was on that side. Um, and then down along that row beside Mike was where all of the programmers were. And then you went, there was a conference room and a big entryway area where they had this like huge, like, God, it must have been like a 500 gallon freshwater fish tank there. <laughs> Notorious fish tank because they moved that tank when they moved to the tower in Bellevue. They took the tank with them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't think they're there anymore. They might've moved again since then. I, I, I'm assuming they took the fish tank with them. But uh, on the other side of the office was where the artists started so like the lady that took care of the fish tank was one of the texture artists and she was in that first office right there and she had another small fish tank in her office too um, and then like level designers and game designers and all that kind of stuff all the way down until there was a big room at the end where I sat that had kind of like a, a staging area for me to build PCs and you know and, and worked on you know whatever needed to be done I, I think you can actually find a couple of photos of me actually in that space like hauling pcs around and stuff if you if you search hard enough yeah oh, geez that was back when i had a ponytail like down to my like the middle of my back uh, <laughs> the days it's different times different times yeah, I mean, everybody there was great. We had, you know, the leadership at Valve was just fantastic. I mean, Gabe's a very personable guy. He was a program manager at Microsoft. There's a there's a certain kind of personality that does well, you know, in those kinds of roles. And, you know, he was very, you know, very insightful, understood, you know, exactly what it was that he wanted, knew how to get, you know, to motivate people to, to you know, join that vision and... Mike was just, you know, is an absolutely brilliant programmer. Um, did some amazing things with with the Quake, you know, source code to make the Half Life engine. And then, you know, again, just the innovation was a big part of it, you know, because because the entire group of people sitting there. So, if you remember, maybe you don't. This might even be before you were born. But <laughs> um, so Half Life, you know, went through 18 month development cycle after they finally got, uh, you know, after Valve finally got a publisher, and they got to the end of that, and the whole entire marketing campaign had rolled. The game was expected to be on shelves on a certain day, and the. This was before I joined. I only heard this story basically kind of secondhand from the group later on after we shipped Half-Life. We kind of got to back together and they kind of regaled these stories. Basically said, you know, we sat here, you know, 18 months ago and asked ourselves if this was the game that we wanted to release and said no. And here we are 18 months later with the game that we wanted to release, you know. And it was it was making those hard choices and saying, look, 
you know, sure, we can we can follow the path of everyone else that's, you know, you know, done their first game and it kind of sucked and, you know, and everybody kind of expects that kind of thing. We thankfully had the freedom to be able to say, you know what, we made our first game and it sucks, so let's just not release that. <laughs> you know, let's make let's make Half Life now, right? And and it was definitely the right choice. You know, being able to you know to put that extra eighteen months of work into it and make sure that the story you know came off the way that it was supposed to. That there was tons and tons of time to play test and go through, and you know all of the things that we keep on talking to a lot of these you know a lot of these these people that we interview that are in the in the industry you know those that's exactly the right thing to do i mean ultimately quality and passion makes you know makes for a good game yeah and that was before you could like release a day one patch and fix a bunch mm -hmm. of bugs you usually just shipped it and that's yep. it you you might have had an ftp site where you could download one patch right <laughs> yeah yeah and do you think you know once say like a studio starts gaining momentum with a like a series you know do you think there would be a point where actually uh you can't have that extra 18 months you know what i mean like i could see something mm -hmm. has a lot of hype around it say for example um the new assassin's creed that's coming out in november mm -hmm. like imagine if they got to the point where they were almost about to ship it and then they were like actually we're going to need another 18 months on this. Like, mm. no, I feel like it would not be accepted. Whereas yeah, these days. <laughs> yeah. It was, I, but, you know, yeah, I almost feel like, you know, the expectations are lower. We don't necessarily expect our games to be perfect on day one anymore. Yeah. Because we know that we're going to get, you know, patches and they're going to update content. And that's kind of expected. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, the having the ability to do that also you know somewhat changes the perspective on you know is it necessary to you know do all of that <laughs> you know if if you can get 80 percent of the way there <laughs> you know by the time you're you know by the time you're ready to launch that's that's good enough right because you know we know that we're going to have to at least release a couple of patches and then we can add some additional content on there and yeah uh, makes you yeah i mean i think it was what you know ricardo was saying is you know back then you know you had to you had to test the software really hard and make sure that everything worked because you got to burn it onto a disc and ship it to a shelf somewhere right <laughs> you didn't have the ability to to you know kind of post patch you know quite as easily so i don't know it's just different times i i can't really even answer that question <laughs> you know it was just it was a different time yeah that's, for that's all there is to it for some of the listeners that don't know, back in the day, uh, games came on CDs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, before that, they came on floppy disks. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you could the download them symbol. off of a bulletin board system at, you know, 16 bytes per minute. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I mean, it's crazy to think that, like... I don't know. Some people listening would just never have played games on CDs. It just blows right. my mind completely. But it's obviously it's obviously pretty likely. Like the whole landscape of how we play games has changed and continues to change so rapidly that yeah, of course, like people just access things in a different way. Maybe you just you just play things on Steam. Like there's a lot of people who just you know use yeah. like that now. 
I uh, currently own two physical games. Yeah. And like 80 games on Steam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, well, I mean, and you know, there's a great, you know, tie-in to Valve as well. I mean, that was that was the key of the innovation was, you know, so how did how did Valve manage to tell their publisher, you know, well, we're not going to release this game that, you know, you just funded us for 18 months to release. Yeah. Instead, we're just going to be like, no, we're just going to remake it for another 18 months. How do you get away with that, right? Well, a lot of this, again, is is the brilliance of Gabe as a businessman and uh, and a great leader. You know, so first off, Gabe and Mike were both parts of the the mystical and, and, and storied, legendary Microsoft millionaires. So they were folks that worked at Microsoft in the early, early days that went through, you know, numerous stock splits and were just ridiculously wealthy. I mean, you know, I mean, maybe not, you know, amazing. You know, they're not Bill Gates, right? But, you know, they're, they're, they're comfortable. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> um, you know, Mike and Gabe basically said, we want to make a game studio. Of course, they, you know, approached Microsoft internally first and, and Microsoft was like, Pfft. The PM for Windows 1.0, what do you know about making games, right? Um, So they finally just said, well, screw it. Let's just fund it ourselves and hired people, you know, out of their own pocket and, you know, rented a, you know, rented a studio office space out of pocket. And when they got to that same point, you know, 18 months in after finding a publisher, they were like, well... You know, let's just uh, let's just make a couple of business deals with uh, you know some hardware vendors for like exclusive versions of Half Life on you know the Voodoo 3D card or something like that, right? Um, you know, to get some funding in there, and then they've you know largely paid for a lot of it out of pocket at that point until uh, until you know they got the product that they wanted to make. So hard decisions like that matter, but you know the innovation was worth it, and you know their their development of the of the half you know of the Steam platform you know is is this. I don't know anything about that personally. It was a product long after I was gone, but uh, you know, I just I, I imagine Gabe being the person that he is was you know a big part of negotiating those contracts with publishers to say you know we will host your software, we will enforce your DRM, we will make sure that you know the licenses are are handled properly for a digital distribution platform, and you know there were absolutely innovations, you know, innovators on that. Because that's like the way that everything works these days. So, I mean, trailblazers right there. Nobody else was doing that back then. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I suppose yeah, that the whole ethos has always just been like, well, we're just, you know, we're just dipping into our own pockets and we're bringing these people together. Let's just, I mean, yeah. Let's just, tr- let's just try some stuff out. And it just yeah. all worked, you know, like really well. So, you know, it makes mm-hmm. sense that they were trailblazers because I guess they were just. They were willing to like trust. Willing to take those risks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Trust your trust your yeah trust your vision. Yeah. <laughs> I think true. that's what you were gonna say, right? For sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, and just moving away from Half Life. Yeah. So what, what at the moment? What kind of involvement do you have in the world of games? Are you sort of have you moved away from it? Are you still? Is it still sort of there for you in a sort of professional way? Nothing really professional. My uh, my my professional work. I'm a I'm a well, I work for I guess the I guess the description of our business would be a solution integrator or something like that. Um, I, I work for a big consulting company. We we help companies implement business operation software. 
So it's it's uh, it's nothing really game related. Although I find a lot of very interesting parallels between MMOs and the software that I implement. Um, in a lot of ways, they operate similarly. They're large systems that are designed for thousands of interactive users executing millions of transactions an hour, which is you know MMO class software. So. I, I always find that kind of interesting when I, you know, I, I find, you know, something about, uh, you know, something about some technical underlying aspect of, of how this system works. And then I'm like, oh, that was invented for Ultima Online in 1983. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> just because it's just like the, the I, I've, I've noticed every single innovation that you've seen come into corporate America was first seen in a video game or a video game system somewhere. It's just you know, the, the innovation and creativity is it comes out of games, people experimenting and tinkering and doing this stuff, finding a, you know, a, a corporate usage for it or a business alignment for that technology usually comes later. <laughs> Businesses aren't willing to experiment and, and, you know, they want systems that work. Let the gamers play, right? <laughs> yeah, that's why some banks still use software built in the 80s. I have some insight on that that we won't get into, but yeah. Fair enough. It's a high risk. Because I, I do work on banking systems, so like I have some specific insight on that one. <laughs> Fair but, enough. Yeah. Um, as for games, I mean, I, I still am an avid game player. I've, you know, I... I actually got into, you know, learning to program in C++ several years ago um, because of this multi, you know, multiplayer online game that Sony had that uh, they sunset. It was actually, it was Daybreak Games by the time they, uh, by the time they were running it. Uh, it was called Landmark and um, they, they sunset the game. There's really nothing out there that's anything like Landmark and... The, the engine that they used was available, but required, you know, knowledge of C++ to do anything with it. So decided to start learning C++ so that I could, uh, so that I could try and recreate at least, you know, some portion of this, this game that we we're passionate about and enjoyed, you know, so that was, you know, more than a, more than anything else, I just decided to, you know, pick this up as a hobby. You know, I'll make an MMO. Yeah, of course, you know, I have to make WoW. I mean, this is this is this is our number one, you know, recurring theme here on this show is don't make wow. And of course, the only thing that I'm doing in my hobby is trying to make wow. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like we could have more sort of I don't know, like if there's a parallel between the sort of systems you're working with in your professional life, and then you have obviously this deep love for this game that no longer exists kind of makes sense that you try and make wow i think more than anybody else we've spoken to <laughs> it probably makes most sense for you i mean it's uh yeah i mean i, I feel like there's there's knowledge there gained from you know what i do professionally that definitely gives me um some kind of insight at least into theories behind some of these things that yeah if anybody was going to try and do some of this stuff it would be a, a weird ass nerd like me <laughs> <laughs> I, I I'm I don't often subscribe to conventions, so you know I I try and solve problems the way that makes the most sense to me, and you know that's that's you need kind of sometimes people in technology that that take the 
the road less traveled. You know, you don't you don't find new ways to do stuff unless you've got somebody out there just like you know bucking the rules. And <laughs> yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, you only need to invent, you know you can invent the light bulb a hundred times, but you only need to invent it once. Oh, I was I can't remember what that phrase is. There's some there's some phrase about like you only have to like invent the socket once or something like that, right? <laughs> there's there's something about like basically. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I remember it now. Okay, um, it had something to do with the material that that they were experimenting with for making light bulbs, and it was something like you know they they went through like three hundred different materials until they finally found the filament that worked. Right, you only have to invent the light bulb once. You can fail a, you know a million times before that, though. <laughs> it's still the light bulb at the end of the day. Right. Right. Yeah, you can fail to make the light bulb a thousand times, but you only have to invent the light bulb once. Yeah. As <laughs> the saying maybe goes. <laughs> yeah, as the saying maybe goes that I just made up right now. <laughs> um, and how was the experience of learning to code in C++ for you? Like, how? Well, what was the sort of, was it difficult? Was the What was the learning curve like? How, was it challenging or was the things... Oh. It was mystifying, I have to admit. I mean, at first, so I had done, you know, a good amount of programming and scripting over the years. I've I've written code in probably 20-some different languages over the years. Um, C and C++ was absolutely mystifying just because of, there's so many different styles and, and, and APIs and, like, there's different versions of C and different versions of C++ with different, like, libraries and features and functionality it was super super confusing for for at least the first year or so because i had some good examples of code and i had some bad examples of code and i wasn't really sure like it was almost like when i was looking at some of this stuff it was like these didn't even look like the same language right i mean it was just it was it was mystifying for a very long time it took a took a long time to get you know kind of a, a good understanding of it i Mostly just read books. I think I probably have about 20, 30 C and C++ books that I've read over the last three or four years, just trying to get a good good grasp of the language. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in, in deep understanding. Like I, I need to, I need to understand why for everything, right? That's that's my curiosity and drive. So you know, why does the language work that way? No, 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 no. Don't just tell me that. Like, really show me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because otherwise it's like, well... Also, if you need to correct a mistake and you've just kind of done it, you know, done something in quite a surface-level way, you'll never be right. able to go in and go, actually, what's wrong with this? Oh, let's open up the back of this and look between the wires inside. Right, right. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me that you'd want to learn how. It's interesting you say that look between the wires because this sexually reminds me of my childhood and, and a lot of the kinds of toys that I had, you know, as a kid. Um, we had this, uh, there's, there's this old store called Radio Shack. <laughs> yes. Um, they had in the 70s and 80s this, uh, this product that was called 101 Electronic Experiments. It was basically uh, kind of a cardboard board that had a bunch of springs on it. And the springs were like, they were like a little cone of like a little spiral cone. So you could like tilt it to the side and you could stick a wire in there and then let go of it and it would clamp the wire on, right? 
And so the whole entire thing just had like, it had a little LED display and it had a little speaker and it had some cathodes and some diodes and some light emitting diodes. And it had a bunch of different kinds of resistors and other kinds of things and oscillators and other kinds of electronic components. And basically you could snap the wires together and you'd literally connect these different components together with wires on this board in different ways to make it do things like you could make it like make a progressive tone that you know counted up on the numbers on the led and like all of these different things that you can do and i played with legos fanatically i still have three huge buckets full of legos and you can probably see on the shelf behind me i've got like there's legos on the shelf and like <laughs> i've always been kind of a tinkerer and a builder so yeah computers just kind of naturally continued into that you know, into that realm of curiosity. And it's just, you know, as I've gotten older, I've been able to comprehend more complex things. So, yeah, I think the curiosity hasn't really gone away. I think it's the same kind of curiosity. I want to get behind the wires and figure out how to do the thing myself, you know? And for you, in terms of games, did you do you ever re remember a moment of playing something and thinking, actually, what's sort of behind this? experience like what is going on behind the scenes that made that creates this world and creates these sort of mechanics and these systems or maybe you never had that moment and it was just kind of always there well that's an interesting question actually because no i don't think i can really remember a time where i was like i want to understand you know why what's going on behind the scenes from like the code perspective of games, but I've definitely always been a huge, huge fan of consuming systems and like understanding how a system works. In fact, you know, a lot of games that I play, uh, my, my interest basically fades after I've figured out how all of the systems in the game work, right? <laughs> I mean, like you play an MMO and if it's really grindy in my mind, that means that the mechanics are relatively simple and so I'll probably get bored with the game pretty quickly because if it gets into a grind mode and there's not a whole lot of complexity to it, then it's going to, you know, it's going to, I'm going to lose interest in it. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday on, uh, on our, on the call that we recorded about uh, quad kiting in EverQuest. It's a very interesting mechanic. It's, it's challenging. It requires you to, to exhibit player skill, other kinds of things in an MMO. And while, EverQuest was a very grindy game. It was still interesting. The game was designed in such a way that it was extremely advantageous to group. Um, the community was small in those days, so you had to make sure that you know you actually maintained a, a, a persona that people actually liked you and you know invited you into groups that you were good at what you did and stuff like that. These are things that I feel are missing from a lot of a lot of games these days, to be honest. But. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've always I've always had a love of systems for sure. You know, I, I you know played a lot of different kinds of you know RPGs as a kid. You know, Dungeons and Dragons, GURPS, Traveler, you know, different. Oh, geez, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Car Wars. I mean, all of the Steve Jackson games. Systems have always fascinated me. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know necessarily if I was like, oh, I wonder, you know, how does that math work? That that's the math has never entertained me all that much, and programming is also a lot of math. So. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with programming because I enjoy doing the logic of it. I, I'm, I'm less interested in the, <laughs> in, in the math. Yeah, uh, I get that. Dungeons & Dragons is an interesting one, actually, because, yes, it is, like, 
you know, a quite manual way of building these quite complicated systems without the ability to actually program it into, you know, a computer or something that saves it in that way. A lot of it's just like in here and it's not like playable anywhere else. It only exists in here. It's really interesting. I never really thought about it before. Were you ever a dungeon master in uh, Dungeons and Dragons? No, um, so I also grew up in an evangelical household, so uh, Dungeons and Dragons was a Satan game, but oh. we played other kinds of games. <laughs> um, was the dragon the Satan element, or was the dungeon the? Was it both? It was all of it was just the Satan. I don't know. It was. It was. It was insanity, and I always thought it was funny. But whatever. Moving on. We don't talk about religion. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I played a couple of times as as a game master. I, I don't know that I was particularly good at it. I mean, I was a very, very shy introvert when I was younger. So like being assertive and like, you know, my dad even like tried to get me to like, you know, ref the, you know, the U7 leagues and stuff when I was a teenager playing soccer or football for you. You know, Europeans. Um, <laughs> yes, the you know, and I was name. like thirteen yeah. or fourteen, and I just I wasn't even assertive enough at that age to like tell a bunch of six year olds to stop kicking the ball and you know like give her yellow flag. It was just like you know who am I, right? I was I was way too awkward as a kid. <laughs> uh, I know the feeling. Yeah, <laughs> we all do. Yeah. <laughs> also, sixteen year olds won't listen to anybody. You know, I try and. <laughs> tell my 16 year old cousins what to do and they're just like mm, so it's like well it's never gonna happen <laughs> and um you know if how when you entered the world of work did that kind of very introverted side of you kind of get and you know awkwardness get challenged kind of immediately because I know it did for me when I first started working it was a massive shock mm. you know well yeah, so my first job was at a pizza place. I think I worked at a Toys R Us as a stock guy. You know, I uh, I went into the military. Uh, was on you know was in the U.S. Navy for a couple of years uh, on submarines. Um, got out of that and basically went into IT. So again. It was a different time. So back then when you went into IT, if you could spell IT and turn a computer on, they thought you were a wizard, like literally. So, I mean, you could be as weird as you wanted to be. I definitely had a sense of it, even from, from you know, the Toys R Us days, my first couple of jobs that like, oh, I keep getting laid off because people don't like me. And I kept getting laid off and laid off from job after job after job. And I mean, I knew that it was just because people didn't like me because I'm, I'm at a, I have a relatively abrasive personality. I'm, uh, believe it or not, I, I've never been this kind <laughs> when I was younger. <laughs> um, no, but, uh, you know, I mean, I was aware of it and, 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 you know, have made efforts over the years to try and, you know, try and understand myself and, you know, gain that kind of confidence. And I, I think, you know, I just, with, with time and age, it, it's come. That's, I mean, I think that's just growing up, right? You know, I still imagine myself in my head as the teenager that I was. And then I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, who's that 45 year old dude there? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, uh, you know, I like who I am now. I liked who I was then. <laughs> warts and all <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's you, you in different snapshots of your life you know? yeah life like, changes <laughs> yeah it's true it's true 
Um, so future, your future, what, what sort of things would you like to achieve still? Uh, you know, are you, do you have any like specific goals up ahead? Well, yeah, I mean, still working on making wow. So honestly, though, you know, I have this kind of interesting, you know, idea of of the future. And I think, you know, my my interests are, are perhaps a little more abstract. You know, when I look at achieving a goal like making wow, I keep on thinking to myself, you know, as I as I work through, you know, these these things that what I've been doing for 30 some years in my career, 25 ish years, I guess, in my career has been making people obsolete and i mean i hate to admit it but that's a lot of what my job does like uh, the technology that i implement makes it so that a business can do you know the work of of hundreds of people with with just a few right i mean that's that's what computer automation does it makes things more efficient you can get you know more work done with less with fewer people and oh crap i just hold on one second <laughs> <laughs> no, you're all right. I, I, I might have missed doing something that I was supposed to do over here. Oh no, okay, it's going good. Um, <laughs> it had me thinking about work there for a second, and I was, I was in the middle of doing something there as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the the what what my job does is it makes jobs obsolete. I hate to say it, but I mean that's really a lot of what my work does, and I've made myself obsolete numerous times as well. Um, repeat the original question. I've I've lost my train of thought. Sorry, um, it was about uh, future goals. Future goals, right, right. So. I look at the kind of the things that I want to see in technology in the future. I look at it from the perspective that as I wait longer, it gets easier and easier and easier. Because that's what I've been seeing technology do for 20, 30, 40 years that I've been alive, right? It's just every year it gets easier and easier. So in my mind, when I'm thinking, you know, I want to create this, you know, amazing procedural voxel world, the technology isn't there right now. But 10 years from now, I'd probably be able to dictate to a computer, generate a voxel-based, you know, procedural world, and it'll just be able to do that, you know? So when I say, you know, I want to create WoW, I'm not looking at it as something that's necessarily something's going to happen right now. It's definitely not going to happen in five years, but the longer you wait, the easier it gets. So... <laughs> So, you know, I'm 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 looking at it from the perspective of, yeah, I want to make wow and it'll happen eventually. <laughs> so yeah, yeah when it comes to like long term goals. And and of course I work towards it in the meantime, you know, exploring yeah. my curiosity and, and learning how to program and seeing, you know, if I can make that happen. Yeah, that's one important thing about don't make wow. It's not it's because people want to make wow and actually finish and deliver. Wow, in like two right. years. Right. They're not looking at it as a learning experience or right. as something they will do on the side for 10 years. No, they want yeah. to hush down and make a wow right now. It's, it's the, yeah, there you go. It's the guiding light. It's the target. It's the aim, right? I'm, I'm, I'm learning these different systems and learning how to program. And that's the kind of the inspiration that's guiding me. Yeah. I'm not trying to make wow next year. Uh, but it, you know, all of the things that I'm learning move me towards that. Yeah, that's that's really insightful, Ricardo. <laughs> exactly. 
You can always <laughs> buy blizzards and fix. <laughs> tell them to make WoW again. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, they just kind of did. <laughs> that's very true. Um, that's interesting that you say that you've made yourself obsolete in your jobs before. Oh, so annoying. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like a sort of snake eating its own tail, isn't it? Because yeah. if you're doing a good job making this system, eventually that system will be so good. Yeah, I've, I've worked myself out of work so many times in my career. It's it's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, that's the other part about it, is especially if you're good at what you do. Yeah, I mean, you can you can make these systems stable to the point where they require very very little maintenance. <laughs> at which point you then become redundant. <laughs> at least you know until ten years from now, when that very little maintenance accumulates ten years of problems, <laughs> yeah. and then you don't have anybody who knows how to fix it at that point. But hey, businesses don't care so much about uh, ten years down the road. <laughs> no, I mean, it's interesting as well, like. From your perspective, what sort of careers should people sort of be focusing on to avoid being, you know, essentially made obsolete by these systems? I guess within games specifically, maybe we should focus on because that's what people are listening for. Maybe. Well, yeah, I mean, this has come up a number of times on several of our interviews. And the truth of the matter is, there is the world is not. The world is not a place where you can learn a thing and then do that forever anymore. No, sure. And so the number one most important skill that you can that you can imbue yourself with is is the is the curiosity to constantly learn. Programming is a great place to be right now because that's kind of the last frontier of technology. That's that's what we need more than anything else right now is programmers. Yeah. Because there's not really a whole lot else to do. We've established, you know, the the world as it is, byte switching networks on the internet and streaming protocols and you know, all of these things use kind of the same things. I've I've had some deep and long philosophical conversations about the nature of technology. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I think the most beautiful thing that came out of the open source software movement is the fact that as a as a world, we find the best ways to do things on this planet among all of the programmers and those best ideas are shared and everyone does them that way. We find those best practices, we find the best ways of doing those things and we share them with everybody. And then everyone benefits from that. That's yeah. one of the most amazing things about technology in my mind. So more programmers finding those amazing solutions to challenging problems is the only thing that, 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 that humanity needs right now in technology. And that requires curiosity and a drive to innovate. You know, all of those things we were talking about, you know, that were, that were hatched, you know, in the early days of, of you know, Valve. It's, it's all about curiosity. <laughs> yeah, I'd say especially now with this whole, I'm going to make the video dated uh, with the whole coronavirus thing. Like uh, <laughs> lots of companies over the world are realizing they weren't very digitized and they should be more mm -hmm. and they're panicking. And I'm pretty sure that they will start investing more in that in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a 
that's i mean that's <laughs> it's kind of funny you know the there's the announcement about the uh about the reduction in h1b visas to the u.s and the united states technology companies bring in hundreds of thousands of of programmers every year and <laughs> And the reason why we do that is because we need more than that. Like, we, we don't even have those hundreds of thousands of programmers here. We need more than that, even. <laughs> like, it's just, and, and I think I've seen, you know, like, like Ricardo was saying, I've seen, you know, a ton of companies out there kind of like, we need to put the pedal to the metal and get out there and start training people. Like, if we want people to do this work, we need to make those people exist. Because <laughs> they just don't right now. Yeah, it's a good thing because it's an area that you can actually have very little experience, get an entry-level position just by showing you can be responsible and yeah. showing in a reasonably good personality, willingness to learn, some skill, yeah. and the company will make you. They will literally make you. Yeah. That is really so interesting. Now, the other thing that I'd like to add to that actually also is that there is always a huge, um, there's always a, a, a lot of opportunity for artists. And I, I, I'm, I'm kind of upset personally about the way that the world treats artists in general, because it's like you guys are the people out there that are, you know, that are, that are making inspiration and something that's just like, purely creative and while programming and technology are also very creative enterprises that you know tap your curiosity and your interest in solving problems there's I, I hate it when you when you I, I dislike it when people compare those things as if they're like one has value and the other doesn't because like in my mind you know I could see this beautiful vision in my head but I without spending tons and tons of time and practicing for, you know, 10 years, I could never make that piece of art. You are specialized in doing that kind of thing. You can make an amazing thing that I can't make. There is just as much value in that as there is in what I'm doing. And I just, it, it frustrates me more than anything else, the, the, the lack of value that people place on art. It's just... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a well-known thing, I guess, like... <sighs> The artist only gets recognized after his time and stuff. Like, I mean, I, mean, I think at, it's less bad. Well, I mean, look at how many, you know, when you look at the credits for a film or a video game these days, look at how many oh, yeah. artists go into building those kinds of things. So there's there's tons and tons and tons of opportunity for art as well and, and just as much of a demand for that. So, you know, yeah. honestly, I feel like the answer to, you know, kind of the question from a few minutes ago is, is find what you want to do and then find somebody who will pay you to do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the trick. Yeah, and ideally something you can do kind of well are willing to struggle to <laughs> right there yeah and if you're and if you're good at the if you're good at it that's a bonus too <laughs> yeah. yeah you don't have to be good but you have to be willing to invest time in learning that yeah yeah there's also a lot yeah. to be said making it until you make it really <laughs> yeah it does help if you if you if you can do it then you then while faking it you will learn how to make it well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's a big part of it. I mean, there's there's something to be said about having confidence in your ability to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
It's like, and okay, so I'm an artist, and you're going to ask me to make art. And maybe you're not going to ask me to make art that I've made before, but I'm an artist, and I can figure out how to make that art. <laughs> so, right? I mean, it's the same approach that I have to programming. You know, I, maybe I don't know the language that you're asking me, but I know how to make computer logic work in yeah. a bunch of different languages, so I'm sure I can figure it out. Yeah, and Stack Overflow, come on. <laughs> that being said, I didn't spend four years and, you know, d dive into 30 books in C++ so that I could be just kind of good at it, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess they're like, if you're willing while you're doing, you know, when you said, yes, I can do this thing for you, mm -hmm. it's actually... Yes, I, I know that I will be able to do this thing for <laughs> later I, on. But I'm just going to take some time to learn how to do it now. But I'm not going to tell you that. I'm just going to do it. And you'll get the final product either way. Kind of exactly, exactly. Ideally on time, yeah. On time. <laughs> Ideally on time. <laughs> So it is actually a little frustrating because, you know, in the in the corporate world that I work, there's not a great deal of demand for C++ programming and basically zero demand for the style specifically that I write C++. I, I really dive into a lot of modern C++ style and I write a lot of stuff in what we call Greenfield, which means it's just I'm starting from a blank slate so I can build these systems however I want to, right? I'm not guided by some existing infrastructure or architecture, right? So... You know, when when it comes to oh crap, I lost my train of thought. I hate when that happens. The <laughs> oh, man for C plus plus. What? Yeah. Oh right, right. Yeah. So in in there's not a great deal of demand for C plus plus in in the corporate world. A lot of the stuff is is working with existing frameworks, existing code. A lot of the stuff is based on .NET and in the corporate world, especially. And while I can write C sharp code and have written quite a bit of C sharp code for both Unity and other kinds of things as well, I, I don't have a great deal of interest in it personally. And while that language in particular would probably give afford me greater opportunities, I'm still focusing on C++ because it's a niche skill. And at some point, someone will need that. <laughs> Ultimately, I'm doing it for myself, though. So, I mean, the fact that, that it has kind of an edge relation to some of the things that I do professionally is not as important to me, I guess, is the was the point I was trying to make. <laughs> Makes sense. I mean, it's almost like buying like a collectible item when they first, when it first comes out, just because right. you really like it. Right. And you also sort of know that down the line somewhere, it's going to be worth like a lot of money. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is my favorite League of Legends champion. You know, Ricardo looks at me and, and pukes because he's a Dota player. <laughs> Worth at Valve plays LOL. <laughs> That's a crime. Lord Gaben. Smite this guy. <laughs> you should have showed him that earlier. I feel like he would have been very riled up. <laughs> I don't care. I'm not an annoying person. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we we don't we don't we don't uh, we don't rib each other over our our choice of uh, of of mobas. <laughs> um, so, what KB always asks when we get into the end of the podcast is, if you have a challenge for the game dev TV community for this week. So, I know I've hit you out of nowhere with this so you might not have a challenge just off the bat 
but as you know, some of them have been writing challenges, like thought challenges, coding challenges. It can be anything, but what would you say to listeners that can challenge them this week? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I asked KB last this and he wasn't expecting me and he absolutely lost his mind. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because while we're sitting there asking other people, we're not the ones putting them on the spot. <laughs> uh, a challenge, yeah. Um, find something that you find something that you enjoy and think about a way to turn that into a career. Just think about it. Think about it real hard. If you like spray painting walls, figure out a way to make money, you know, make a career, contribute to, you know, a, a studio, you know, something that has to do with spray painting walls, right? Think about what you might do with that skill that could contribute to your community or your society or your family or something like that. Uh, spray painting walls was a weird thing to, to use as an example, but think about some of the things that you enjoy doing and think about how you could make that into something that contributes to the greater good. Okay, that's a good challenge. That's really interesting. I'm kind of doing that at the moment as well. Um, yeah, well, it was just I was literally just doing that today with with my mum. She she did this career coaching session, and one mm -hmm. of the things you had to do was look at the things that you love to do. Yeah, and break that down. Like, what skills do I have to reach this? Yeah, point? what do I need to do to yeah develop these skills? So it's exactly yeah for sure. Do you have any more questions, Ricardo, or should we wrap it up? And I'll try and save this somehow. <laughs> no that was good that was good pretty good talk yeah thanks it's uh, it's fun Le allowing me to finally clear the air and 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 decline all of the uh, you know all of the praise that people keep on heaping me on for barely contributing anything to half-life but i have to My say name's in the credits that's that's your it. name is there <laughs> exactly i saw it it is there I love all right it. thank you very thank much you.